Well, Jesus, on the last night of his life, the last few hours of his life, prayed this wonderful prayer around the table as the candles flickered and uh, the sun went down. And he prayed that those who came after us would be one, even as he and the Father were one, so that the world might believe that God had sent him. It's a wonderful prayer of all the things he could pray for on the last night of, uh, of his life, of all the things he seemed to care about, was that we be one and that there's some way in which when we are one, we reveal the beauty of the Trinity to the world and they believe. It's a very important prayer. It's why oneness and unity is always so important to the people of God. And Early in the book of Acts, the church starts in Jerusalem. It's pretty much a Jewish movement, and you'll remember a lot of unity. Uh, incredible unity. They're selling their possessions. They're together. It's just this great unity. And then persecution comes. They begin sharing with non-Jews, which we call Gentiles. Gentiles come into the church. All this tension erupts. And all of a sudden, you've got a lot of conflict and a disruption of the unity. And the Acts 15 that we started last week is the first time the church has had a major theological controversy threatening to disrupt the unity of the church. And we we looked at it last week. We started it out and noticed that there were kind of two theological beliefs clashing here. The, the traditional Jewish believers said, okay, you need to believe in Jesus and you need to keep the law. In other words, you need to become Jewish to become a Christian. The Gentiles said, we don't know anything about the law. We heard that if you trust in Christ, you're saved. That's good enough for us. We'll follow his teachings. And so uh, we left last week with the Gentile faction of the church uh, up in Antioch coming down to have a meeting with the Jewish faction of the church in Jerusalem to work things out. And really, the future and the witness of the church is at stake. Um, now, one of the things that we can assume at this point, all, all the leaders of the factions are devout Hebrews, uh, Jews that have been trained in uh, the rabbinical way of approaching the scriptures. So every leader in this story, in this meeting, sometimes it's called the first ecumenical council of the church. Everyone loves scripture. They deeply, deeply love and respect scripture. And they want to be one. They don't want to split up. And so they face a really profound riddle. And th this is a riddle I think we as a church have taken very seriously and uh, thought about all of, our, all of our life together. How do Christians who disagree on important theological issues love Scripture and one another at the same time? How do Christians who disagree on Important theological issues love Scripture and one another at the same time. And that's a very important question. It might be one of the most important questions the church faces today. And uh, I, just, I just sense that maybe we could sit in Acts 15 for a while and not rush through it. I've been thinking about this for a while and 
Uh, I thought maybe we could just kind of mine this passage a little bit, see what it might teach us. Arthur Brooks, in a 2019 New York Times editorial, he, he made the argument that Americans now live in a culture of contempt. He says, people often say that a problem in America is incivility or intolerance. This is incorrect. The real problem is contempt, which is a noxious brew of anger and disgust. And not just contempt for other people's ideas, but also for other people. Contempt, as one philosopher put it, is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. Brooks notes that political scientists have found that we're more polarized than any time since the Civil War. One in six family members have stopped talking to each other since the 2016 election. Researchers find that the level of disgust Democrats and Republicans feel for each other today is comparable with that of the Palestinians and the Israelis. Christianity Today, which is a magazine for church leaders, uh, had an article last fall describing this growing polarity, and it begins, The problem is not that the people in the church disagree about who to vote for. It's not that they get angry, shoot fiery emails to the pastor, get into bruising fights on Facebook, although that happens. And really the problem is not that some things are suddenly intentionally political, as though they weren't before. Trusting health experts, saying everyone's created in the image of God, preaching on a passage of scripture about the poor. The problem of polarization, according to the pastors of purple churches, struggling to minister to red Republicans and blue Democrats during another divisive election, is that people stop fighting. They part ways. And they sort themselves by political preference. Polarization makes it seem like unity in Christ can only come after political unity. Polarization makes it seem like partisanship is stronger than the gospel. The polarization is so deep now, said Leroy Lawson, an independent Christian church minister who started preaching in the 50s, that most churches lean to the left or lean to the right, and they think only left or right can be true Christians. Polarization is a 30-year cultural trend, according to sociologists and political scientists. Why is this so hard? Jesus really seemed to, to know how hard it would be because he says that the one thing that will really testify to God's beauty is that somehow if you can stay united, if you can actually love each other well, despite the human tendency to break apart, that will show something to God or rather to your neighbor. You'll look like God and people will notice. You do that, people will believe. A famous psychological experiment suggests, though, that this human tendency to fracture is hardwired into the human race. In the summer of 1954, a group of fifth grade boys were invited to spend several weeks at a summer camp, and they didn't know they were subjects of an experiment. So the boys spent the first week hiking and fishing and going on a treasure hunt. And at the end of the week, the campers were told that another group of campers was staying in another camp not far away. Now, the same thing was happening in the other camp. A rivalry began immediately. The group chose names. The Eagles versus the Rattlers. One group rushed to the baseball field, put their flag on the pitching mound, and claimed it. 
During the second week, the counselors, who were actually participants in the experiment, brought the boys together on the baseball field for competitive games. Relationships deteriorated very quickly. The Eagles burned the Rattlers' flag. The Rattlers retaliated, burned their flag. That night, the, rat the Rattlers raided the Eagles' cabin, turned over beds, ripped their mosquito netting, stole their comic books. The Eagles fought back. While the Rattlers ate dinner, their enemies returned the favor, except they escalated the conflict and brought sticks and bats and socks filled with stones to use as weapons. Finally, the counselors shut down the experiment before the violence escalated further. We are hardwired to hate each other. And so Jesus prays for our oneness, knowing that if by God's grace we could actually stay together, we would witness to a mighty God. Now, Jesus makes it clear that our unity and our oneness is related to our witness. And so I think it's reasonable to be asking, is the church's division somehow related to why so many younger people particularly are leaving the church. According to Barna, two-thirds of American 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up in church are no longer actively involved. The most rapidly growing religious group in America today are the nuns, people who have no religious affiliation. According to the Pew Research Center, a third of Americans under 30 report no connection to any kind of organized religious community. And a major reason people tell pollsters for the exodus is that people are fed up with doctrinal infighting. A 30-year-old Atlanta man who left the church with his wife explains, We moved to a city. We talked a lot about how we came to see all of this negativity from church people who were highly religious. We just said we don't want a part of it. Now, here's the challenge. Here's the puzzling part of the riddle. Many of the times we divide and separate and split apart, it comes back to how we read Scripture. We love Scripture. We believe God's revealed Himself in Scripture. We think Scripture shows us how to love and obey God. We live under the authority of Scripture. We believe scriptural doctrine matters. The problem is we don't always agree on what Scripture means. And that's what's happening in Acts 15. So back to our riddle. How do we love Scripture and one another at the same time when we disagree? Well, verse 6, verse six I think, is a good place to start. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. So the very first thing that happens, maybe the biggest principle to take away from this, is that they gather together, they create a safe space centered around Scripture, probably saturated in prayer and liturgy, where they talk about a profound theological difference. A profound theological difference. You know, when I dream and take those prayer walks over in our new neighborhood, when I dream about what might happen there in a few years, if we regularly offered safe, scripturally-based spaces or conversations about 
beliefs that matter could take place and nobody got hurt and people grew and listened and were challenged and sharpened. I think that would be a profound way to witness to our neighbors. What if that was our reputation? Hey, that's definitely a Christian church, but man, you go in there and all sorts of people are coming around and talking about what they believe. I think that'd be a beautiful witness for us. I've actually been in a space recently where some people are attempting to have conversations that matter about really important beliefs centered on Scripture. Uh, it's kind of scary, but it's kind of hopeful. And it's taken a while, but what I'm watching is people are really listening to each other and trying to understand the values and fears and dreams and beneath the differences. Gosh, it's beautiful. And I confess, sometimes I'll be in that room and somebody will say something and I'll be, but what? A but if I hold back and say, so why do you feel that way? And then maybe eventually I get to explain why I feel the way I do. It, it, it's one of the most spiritually transformative spaces I've, I've ever been in my whole ministry. And honestly, it's so different than sort of some of the fill-in-the-blank Bible studies I've been in, where the right answer is just in the back of the book and you just got to look it up. No, something really rich and powerful is emerging in this space. And, you know, if that's something, creating spaces like that, if that's something that energizes you down the road, um, let's have coffee. I'd love to talk with you more about that. Well, one of the reasons I think we don't gather for conversations like the ones in Acts 15.6 is we feel like it'll cause damage and it will harm spiritual growth. And sometimes it does. We, we think that, that, that Christians grow best in spaces where everything is clearly laid out in black and white and agreed upon. And we think these are the things we're certain about. We all agree with them. Let's study them to reinforce our certainty. And if you're not certain, we give you an apologetics book to give you the answers. But what I want to suggest is that historically that has not been the way that God's people have approached Scripture. Matter of fact, it's not how they approach Scripture in this text. The Hebrew people believe that the way you study the Bible best is to vigorously argue about its meaning. And this approach is called Midrash. And that's one of the reasons they all were so comfortable to go into that room in Jerusalem and fight like crazy for hours and maybe days over the text. It wasn't abnormal. It was just how Jewish scholars studied the Bible. It's called Midrash. Here's a, a summary from a, one writer. For Jewish readers, the tensions and questions produced by Scripture aren't obstacles to be avoided, but rather opportunities for engagement, invitations to join in the great conversation between God and His people that's been going on for centuries. A Jewish friend of mine told of a dinner party in which her husband, a rabbi, invited a group of fellow rabbis, scholars, and friends for a conversation. We were debating application of Torah long into the night, she told me. Everyone brought a, diff 
a different point of view. No one could exactly agree. Shouts of hearty agreement and fierce dissent woke the baby twice, and we nearly ran out of food. For a group of Jews, it was the perfect evening. Now, this is the way Paul and Jesus would have been trained to study the Bible. And don't get me wrong. It's not saying, oh, it means whatever you want it to mean. Oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand anything about Bible study <laughs> if that's what you think. No, 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 no. The belief is that God has spoken. The belief is also is that we're fallen, frail people, and we can't do it perfectly. We need to study it in community, and there's no answer in the back of the book that you look up and fill in the blank. The people of God come to understand in community, in prayer, as they dialogue about the text. And this is important. What happens in this story, and by the way, we're only going one verse tonight. <laughs> what happens in this story is by the end of the discussion, the gospel is clarified and understood in a deeper way, and the whole church advances in the knowledge of God. And I'm saying that because I want you to see that this kind of approach actually is a beautiful means of spiritual formation. When good people come around a text and wrestle with it in faith and in the spirit with a heart of loving God and loving others, it's a beautiful space for spiritual transformation. Now, fast forward a thousand years, uh, Peter Abelard, a professor at the University of Paris, very popular teacher. He, he, he changes the teaching method, and students come from all over Europe, Europe to sit under his teaching. He decides, I'm not just going to lecture to my students. He decides to state a theological issue, read interpretations from the church fathers that seem to contradict one another, and then ask the students to take different sides of the issue and argue it. And this became the standard mode of uh, theological education for several hundred years. He wrote a famous book called Seek et Non, Latin for Yes and No. It has 158 short chapters. Each chapter begins with an important theological statement. It's followed by a quote from the fathers that supports the statement, and then a quote from the fathers that is against the statement. And then the students used this text in class and debated the different views as a way to greater understand the Bible. What I want to suggest to you is that this approach, this dialogical approach, this idea that in community and in the spirit and unearthing the text and, and, and getting into it and sharing our different points of view, this is how the Hebrew people studied the Bible, and it's how for many years people in the church studied the Bible. And I would argue that the fill-in-the-blank Bible study method is more a product of late modernity than of any other time in history. So why do, how do Christians who disagree love Scripture and one another at the same time? We're going to sit with this text and ask that question for a couple of weeks. But we've got a few hints. They don't divide, they gather they rigorously debate the meaning of Scripture, and out of this discussion comes greater understanding of the gospel and clarity for how it works out in life. And they're able to do this because they had a posture to the Scripture they learned over generations of study that good people who come together around a text in faith and in the Spirit can discern God's will together. So I've been thinking about this, this little space that I've, I've been 
in for for a while now. And one of the things that's really rich about it is a level of trust has grown, and there there's a ground rule of this is a space where you can be unedited and unfiltered. And that sometimes the Holy Spirit is at work in bringing things up out of your interaction with the text that you wouldn't normally share in a Bible study. And that actually that stuff that comes up, the question, the doubt, the anger, the joy, uh, the interpretation that you've not thought of before, that that actually could be the Spirit at work either guiding you to truth or perhaps revealing something that's confused in your own life. And so one of the ground rules of this little space is unedited, unfiltered. Remarkable things have come out of that mess. And I can't help compare it to all the fill-in-the-blank Bible studies I've done over the years. It's a rich way to discern what God's Word really means. Now, let me end with this aside. This is not an argument that every disagreement requires some huge summit, that we have to make a big deal out of everything we disagree on. It's n I'm not saying that somehow it's wrong to leave a local church because and you, when you find another one fits you better. That's not what we're talking about here. That's, that's a cult. The participants in this council all go off and plant very different kinds of churches. The, the principle we're trying to point out here is this higher one that it is a really good thing for Christians who disagree to get a, gather in a room and just have it out. Now, it's interesting. We'll find that the verses that follow the account of the Jerusalem Council find Paul and Barnabas disagreeing <laughs> about a strategic matter and they go separate ways. So right here in the, the greatest moment of unity in the early church, within a few verses, the two leaders have a difference in strategy and they go different ways. And I always thought that meant, oh, they're just such sinners. Here's, what I think, here's how I think about it now. They are sinners. But issues of strategy are not the same thing as Issues of theological doctrine and belief. There are many times when you and I will disagree on how to do this and how to do that and whether to have yard church here or there, masks or whatever. We don't need a council to figure that out. But there are times when a community really comes upon a theological issue that's dividing them where we do need to follow this example and come together. I don't want to make... A, unity a legalistic law i don't want to be putting on us tonight you know if you have any conflict in your life and you haven't worked it through god can't bless you god can't use you go back call your mother call your mother and make it right oh gosh life's too short i've been through too many of those conversations <laughs> i want you to feel entirely free when somebody says we need to talk you have every right to say why and if you hear the answer and you don't like it you have every right to say no thank you I'm not trying to put on some legalistic unity here. I'm trying, though, to cast a vision that Christians who disagree can love Scripture and one another at the same time, and that that leads to the richest spiritual formation and discipleship you could ever want. Father, 
Thank you for these lovely spring nights. I suspect someday we'll look back at this little transition period as a very rich, very rich time. Lord, I don't know where this hits everybody tonight, but I pray, I pray we could be a church that would echo Acts 15. Teach us what the ancients knew about coming together in the Bible, in community, listening, hearing, sharing, discerning together the meaning of the text and your will for us. We ask this in your name. Amen.